Well, if you would now take out your copy of the Word of God and uh, look with me at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you, for some reason, forgot your Bible this morning, there are some available for you. Uh, Feel free to take one of those from the seats in front of you. This passage is on page 5 in those Bibles. And once you are there, uh, Genesis chapter 6, we're only going to read the first four verses. Uh, I would ask you, though, if you are physically able to stand with me and uh, let us read the Word of God and let God speak to us. So, uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, this is what God says to us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. You may be seated. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is profitable, including those that are difficult, including those verses that are not always immediately apparent as to what they are referring to. And that's important to keep in mind because today we come to one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Bible. Who are the sons of God in these verses? Who are the Nephilim, the children of the sons of God who came into the daughters of man? What does it mean when God says that man's days shall only be 120 years? There is widespread disagreement on all of these issues. The most difficult of all those questions is the question of who are these sons of God? Because that affects the way you read the rest of the passage. Who are these sons of God? And it's, it's a complicated discussion, and we're not even going to get into it this morning. We're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, but just so you know, some believe that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth the godly line that we looked at last Sunday night. Others believe that these were wicked human kings, human tyrants who created harems for themselves. I take the position humbly, not dogmatically, because I really don't know, uh, but I lean towards the position that these were, in fact, angels who uh, came and took for themselves human wives. But I hope as we study this difficult passage today, you will see that despite the difficulties and despite the questions, there is much here that is profitable. There is much here to convict our hearts and to point us to Christ, much to learn and to help us. And so I hope you will be able to say that that is true 
when this Lord's day has come to an end. Let me begin by asking you this question. How are your eyes? Are your eyes healthy? Now, I'm not asking whether you have 20-20 vision. I certainly don't. If it weren't for these contacts, I wouldn't even know you're here. (laughs) Nor uh, am I asking whether you have an astigmatism or or other kind of physical eye ailment. But, But I am concerned about the health of your eyes. And I'm concerned about the health of your eyes because the health of your eyes will determine the health of your soul. Listen to these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Have you ever read those verses before? We read them in Sunday school just a few minutes ago, some of us. What do you think Jesus is saying in those verses? If we were to spend time asking, what is Jesus saying? I think ultimately there he's making a comparison between how your physical eyes relate to your physical body and how your spiritual eyes relate to your soul. But I think also we can say here that, that Jesus is teaching that it is through our eyes that light or darkness come into our lives. If our eyes are looking upon heavenly things, things which are good and holy and pure, then our hearts will be full of those things and our lives will be characterized by those things. But if our eyes are set upon earthly things instead of heavenly things, our eyes will cause our hearts to be filled with worldliness and with self-centeredness and with darkness. Jesus said this right after he told us to store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. For he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And often that which we treasure is that which we look at. That which we linger on with our eyes. and So the message here is that what your eyes, whether it's your physical eyes or your spiritual eyes, that which your eyes focus on is what will fill your heart and characterize your life. What does that have to do with Genesis 6? Notice the pattern of sin in verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply, On the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. I simply want to ask you, does that sound familiar to you? They saw, they took. Haven't we seen that language before? I would suggest to you that this language ought to be familiar to you for a couple of reasons. But first, it ought to be familiar to you if you've been with us in Genesis. And you remember when we looked at Genesis 3 and the account of the fall. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, dot, 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 she took of its fruit and ate. 
Eve saw something that was not rightfully hers. It was the only thing in the garden that was forbidden to her, but when her eyes looked upon that forbidden fruit, suddenly desires welled up in her heart, and in the end, those desires drove her to take the fruit. It began with the eyes, it went to the heart, and it resulted in action. And that's what we see taking place here. Whoever these sons of God were, everyone agrees that they were not to be taking wives from these women. And who you believe the sons of God were determines who you think the daughters were. But we're not going to get into that. The point is, they were not to be taking these wives. All right, This was sin. These were women who were off limits to them. And yet they saw, and they saw that they were attracted. And when they saw these beautiful women, desires welled up in their hearts so that they committed an immoral act, taking for themselves what they should not have taken. So this language ought to sound familiar to you because this is the language used when the Bible describes the most tragic event that ever took place in the history of the world. The event that is ultimately the reason we have cancer and tornadoes and everything else that is evil. In the world. But there's a second reason that this language of looking and taking should be familiar to you. And I would suggest, and I would ask you, when you take time to think about your own life, would you not say that many of the sins that you have fallen into could be described in these terms? You saw and you took. How many times have we made a foolish purchase? Because we were in the store, we hadn't planned on getting this thing, but we, we, we became bad stewards of our money because we saw it. We saw this thing, and desire welled up in our hearts, and we had to have it. We had, am I the only one here for whom that has happened before? Right. Um, there's a reason that these luxurious resorts will pay for your hotel room to come stay near their facilities so they can take you on a tour of their facilities. They understand that there is power in sight. If they call you on the phone and offer their vacation package, it is easy for you to refuse their vacation package because you're not looking at the beaches. You're not looking at the sparkling blue water of the Olympic-sized swimming pool or row after row of mouth-watering food on the buffet or the world-class golf course. You're not seeing that over the phone. But if they can get you there, if they can take you on the tour, there's something about seeing it that makes these desires well up in your heart. And you say, all right, all of this for only $2,500? It's a deal! You would have never done that on the phone. There's something about sight that affects us. Friends, the Scripture tells us that we should be very wary, very cautious about those desires that come into our hearts through our physical eyes. 1 John 3.16. I bet you know John 3.16. Do you know 1 John 3.16? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions 
is not from the Father, but from the world. Give me a second. Yeah, I knew it when I said it was wrong. It's 1 John 2.16. Because I do know 1 John 3.16. I knew that wasn't it. Uh, 1 John 2.16. Listen to it again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. We are not to let the desires that enter our hearts through our physical eyes govern our lives. Rather, the desires that are to drive the Christian life are desires for things that are unseen. Take to heart 2 Corinthians 4.18. Your life will be spared from so many sins and so much harm that would come to you and to those you love could be avoided if you will just heed 2 Corinthians 4.18. What does 2 Corinthians 4.18 say? It says this, that we are to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, anything that you can see with your eyes ought not to have a central place in the desires of your heart. For everything that you see with your eyes is passing away. It is those things which you cannot see which are most important, which are eternal. It is our Lord Jesus the glory of our God, the souls of other people, the realities of heaven and hell and eternity. These are things that you cannot see, but they are to drive your life. You can't see them, but they're to shape who you are. They're to affect the decisions that you make, how you live and what your calling is and how you walk each and every day. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are, tr are transient, but the things that are unseen are lasting, eternal. Justin, how can we know that they are realities if we can't see them? Justin, it's easy to live for money. I can see money. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can even taste it. God, I don't want to do that, but you you, can, you see it. It's there, right? It's easy to live for possessions. It's easy to live for the latest movies or the latest fashions or uh, the, the, the weekend excursions, golf trips, fishing. The, these things you can see and touch and experience with your senses. Living for that corner office at work. Every day you go to work and you can see that corner office. You can, I can, I'm going to live for that. I'm going to get there. But friends, the most important realities in the world are the ones you cannot see, cannot smell, cannot touch, cannot taste, and cannot hear. You cannot see, smell, touch, hear, or literally taste the glories of heaven or the terrors of hell. But they are real. And if they are real, they ought to change the way we live. The Bible says we are to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 in other words, Christians are to look to something, right? 
We are to look to something. We are to see something that causes desires in our heart, which causes us to take. But it's, it's not to be the sinful seeing and taking that we see there in Genesis 6. Christians, it's the opposite. The same pattern, but it's, this is good and holy to see something that causes good desires in our hearts, which causes us to do good action. What is it that we are to be looking at? What is it that we're to set our eyes upon? Well, it's a person, isn't it? It's the person. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. See, friends, we have physical eyes, and we have spiritual eyes. You have, you have eyes in your noggin, but you also have spiritual eyes of your heart. And the chief desires that are to govern your life are not to be desires that come in through here. To be desires that come in through the eyes of faith. Here in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, there is a sin of sexual immorality that is taking place. A sin of taking wives that these sons of God were not to take. But before the act of sexual immorality took place, lust was in the heart. And before there was lust in the heart, there were eyes that were seeing lingering on the attractiveness of these daughters of man. One essential aspect of guarding your heart is learning to guard your eyes. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? Job 31.1 all Christians should follow Job's example and make a covenant with our eyes that we will not look upon other people or material things with lust or covetousness in our hearts. This may require drastic action. Remember the words of Jesus? If your right eye causes you to sin, what? Whoosh! Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You would be better to come to church next Sunday with a bloody eye socket and no eye than to come to church next Sunday with your eyes perfectly healthy and deceit and covetousness and lust in your heart because of the things you've seen. We are to guard our eyes, to be careful upon that which we look at. Maybe we need to stop watching certain kinds of movies. Maybe we need to make sure we have a filter on our computers. Maybe we have to stop going to the western sizzling, because as soon as we see that buffet filled with food, gluttony enters our heart, and it expresses itself in action. And we'd be best if we just never walked in the door and saw it. 
Food, by the way, is a good example of the fact that there are many things on this earth that are good things until our eyes begin to linger on them with an attention and an affection that are disproportionate to what they deserve. It can be anything. A set of golf clubs, a new oven, a plasma screen television, uh, an outfit, a corner office. All these things are fine until you see and you keep seeing and you keep seeing and welling up in your heart is a desire to almost live for that. I've got to have it. I won't be content without it. Oh, I have Jesus, but He's not really sufficient. I need Jesus and that. Anything that our eyes can look upon can become an idol, an object of our covetousness and lust. And the longer our eyes linger, the more these good things become poison to our souls. There is not a thing in the world wrong with noticing the nice new house that is next to yours when you get in your car to go to work in the morning. But if you notice that nice new house next to yours every morning, you take a moment and look upon it every morning thinking to yourself, I wish that was my house. I wish my house had, had a porch like that one. Oh, I wish, why didn't we get a, a two-car garage like that one? Why, why didn't we add that? Like, look at that second story. And, and then as you look upon this house every day, suddenly there's bitterness and jealousy and hostility in your heart towards the people who live there. And you may not have even never met them. They may be great people. It doesn't matter to you. It's the house you wish you had. Right? Sin which always has covetousness at the bottom of it, has a funny way of blossoming into all sorts of other evils, and it often begins with the eyes. And so the doctrine that I take from verse 2, they saw and took, is Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, we need to guard our hearts by keeping a watch over our eyes. What do they linger on? Careful little eyes, what you see. May the supreme desires of our heart be for those things which are seen with the eyes of faith. The Christ that we see revealed in creation and preeminently in His Word and then also in the means of grace in His people. That is what we are to long for and live for and desire. And when we begin living for things we can physically see, our lives are out of whack. We're living for things that are transient, not eternal, and we're wasting our lives. So watch over your eyes. You will be spared from many sins. But before we move on, uh, let me quickly remind you this. If you live by the desires of the eyes of faith today, your reward is that one day you will look upon the Lord Jesus Christ with physical eyes. And you will see the Jesus you were created to love. The Jesus you were created to linger looking upon and worship and adore. Go with me to verse 4 quickly. Let's skip to verse 4. Because we learned there that the, the children that were born to the sons of God and the daughters of man were these people called the Nephilim. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. There are some who actually argue that the Nephilim uh, were not the children uh, of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They argue that the Nephilim just lived at the same time as the sons of God and the daughters of men. But when I see the word these uh, there at the last part of verse 4, I think the these there refers to the children that were born to them. And so I do think that this refers to the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, what are the Nephilim? Well, the word Nephilim in English is simply the Hebrew word transliterated into English. In other words, they didn't translate the word. Most translations refuse to translate the word Nephilim into anything. They just transliterate it because there's a lot of questions. We're not positive about what the Nephilim or who the Nephilim were. But the King James Version did translate the word. They translated it as giants. The King James Version reads, there were giants in the earth in those days. Where did the King James Version get that meaning for the word Nephilim? Well, they got it from the only other place in the Bible where the word is used. Numbers 13, 33. And let me just remind you about what's happening there. You have this exciting story of the spies that Moses sent into Canaan to spy out the land. And you remember that these are the spies that are protected by Rahab the prostitute. Remember that? She protects them and and then sends them on their way. And, And so they have been to Jericho. They have been into Canaan. And now they come back into the wilderness to Moses and the people to give their report. And as they give their report, Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies... They call for the people of Israel to go, saying, God will certainly give us victory. Let us go into Canaan. God will give victory to us. But the rest of the spies disagree. And their report includes this sentence. And there we saw the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So there's this report, these these people in Canaan, these people that we saw in Jericho, we we saw this, this particular group of people called the Nephilim, and to them, we were like grasshoppers. And so the King James Version took that to mean Nephilim are giants. Now, the word Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word to fall. And so it is very possible that the word might be translated as the fallen ones. And so some see that as a piece of evidence that these were the children of fallen angels who would come into the daughters of man. But the Nephilim were known not only perhaps for their size, but also definitely for their strength and ability as warriors. Because in Genesis 6, they are called mighty men. A phrase which occurs again and again and again in the Old Testament, 117 times, and it always is as a reference to men of violence. Sometimes it's a very positive reference, as in David's mighty men. Remember David's mighty men from Chronicles, these these great warriors? Sometimes, as in here, the reference is clearly negative. These mighty men, in verse 4, were remembered for their violent exploits. 
They were remembered long after they had disappeared, which is why they were called men of renown. Parents would tell their children about those days when the Nephilim were on the earth and how mighty they were and all the violent things they did. Notice, by the way, uh, next week we will see that when God looks to flood the earth, one of the reasons he gives why he's bringing his judgment on the earth is he says the earth is filled with violence. And some think that the Nephilim are are contributing to that, helping spread violence throughout the earth. They're called men of old. They're called men of old because in the day of Moses, when he was writing this, they no longer existed. They had been completely wiped out by the flood. The Nephilim in Numbers 13.33 are are not the same as as here. Um, They are, in fact, it's actually noted. Moses seems to note there in 13.33 that these are are a different race, that this was a unique race of people that lived in Genesis 6. and They no longer exist. Now go back with me to verse 3. God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Other translations say, My spirit shall not contend or strive with man forever. Whatever translation you take, the point is that God's holy, life-giving, life-sustaining spirit will not continue to tolerate supporting the existence of wicked human beings. Remember how earlier we saw that God breathed into Adam and gave him life? And we talked about that that same word there is also used of the animals, that even the breath that the animals have within them comes from God. It is the Spirit of God that ultimately gives life to every human being and every animal on this earth. But now... That spirit which God breathed into man is about to be withdrawn. The breath of life in the lungs of every person and every animal is about to be quenched by God's righteous judgment. The wickedness of man has become too great. And so God says in verse 3 that He will not bear with man any longer. God says that He will not bear with them, for for man is flesh. Verse 3, He is flesh. And that doesn't just mean that man is mortal, though that's very true. That word actually refers to the immorality, the corruption of man. Many think that the Apostle Paul, who talks about our flesh battling against the Spirit, they they believe that he actually got his idea of the flesh as meaning corruption uh, from this very verse. The fact that man is flesh means that he is carnal and corrupt. And because man is corrupt, God resolves within himself and reveals here that man's days shall be 120 years. Do you see that, verse 3? His days shall be 120 years. Now, Some have taken this to mean that God is now declaring That though man, just in the last chapter, was living, and the chapter before that, up to 900 years, right? They were living all sorts of long time, but now God sees the wickedness of man and He says, I'm not going to let men live for centuries anymore. Their days shall be 120 years. Many take this to be the lifespan of a human being. That is possible. I think it's unlikely. We're told in Genesis 11, after the flood, of several different men born after the flood who lived to be over 400 years old. And so if God is here declaring that man's life shall be 120 years, why afterwards do we still see people born who live upwards of 400 years old? 
Now, it's absolutely true that as new generations rise after the flood, the lifespan of human beings does begin to decrease rather drastically. And after the first few generations, people do stop living so long. But they also stop living even to 120 years. Uh, Once you get further into Genesis, just like in our day, people are blessed to see 80 or 90. Moses lived to be 120 years, but he is one of very, very few In fact, in our day, um, hearing of somebody reaching 120 years old is exceedingly rare. Um, I looked on Wikipedia this week. They said that the oldest person alive today is 115 years old. Now, I saw in the news yesterday that maybe it was the oldest man died yesterday. So uh, I I don't know if he was the oldest or perhaps there's an older woman. Uh, I I don't know. But the oldest person, according to three days ago, was 115 years old. Only twice in modern recorded history out of the billions of people on planet Earth has we found people who have reached 120 years old. So it's possible God's talking about lifespan, but that's not, I think, the main meaning here. I think rather this is God declaring that he, because of man's wickedness, is going to destroy man in 120 years. That is, he is looking at man at this time, and he says, I am going to bring judgment on the earth. I'm going to bring my flood in 120 years. We are told in 1 Peter 3.20 that God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And many think that Peter is referring to this verse, that God, rather than saying, I'm going to bring my judgment right now, he says, I cannot bear with this wickedness any longer. I'm going to bring my judgment in 120 years. And that period of time was to give time for him to reveal himself to Noah, to build that ark which would preserve the human race and the animal kingdom. The doctrine of this text is that God's patience and his long-suffering, while wonderful, will not last forever. There comes a time when God's mercy towards the unrepentant must end in order for His justice to have its day. Our God is love, but He is also good. And His goodness means that wickedness must be punished. God up to this point had been very wicked, I mean, had been very patient with wicked men. But now his patience is reaching its end. Judgment is coming. Mount Hermon, every day that God allows a person to live is a day in which that person can find forgiveness and salvation by repentance and faith. Every day that a person is breathing is a gift from God's hand. More time for that person to be reconciled to God. But God does not promise us tomorrow. He calls all humanity to repent and believe today. Tomorrow might not come. There will come a day when God's gracious, loving patience will have all been spent towards this wicked world and His holy justice will carry out His judgment in the return of Jesus. There are so many people who think they can put off dealing with God Almighty. They think they can wait till their deathbed and then simply ask God for forgiveness, sort of toying with God, manipulating God. I'm going to live as I want, and then at the end I'll just say the right thing to God and He'll take care of it. 
treating God as someone to be trifled with. We need to go to our friends and we need to go to our loved ones who are continuing to live in sin. And we need to draw their attention to this truth taught all over the Bible. Romans 2, 4-5. through You need to go to your loved ones and your friends who are continuing to put off dealing with God and they're living in sin. And you need to ask them. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Friends, loved ones, yes, God is patient. Oh, the Bible says He's rich in His patience. But don't presume on that patience. Don't presume that because He's allowing you to live and not be in hell this moment, He's going to do that again tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Turn and repent. Every day that a sinner lives in his or her sin and is not cast into hell is a day in which God is being merciful. But these sinners are living on borrowed time. Every day they wake up and God's mercies towards them are new and yet they spend that day in sinful unbelief and disobedience storing up for the wrath for themselves. And so we need to consider these words. And if there is any in this room who are separated from God, I would ask you to hear my call. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ now. Hate your sin. Turn from your sin. See Jesus lifted up as a great Savior for you, able to save you from your sin able to set your life on a right path. He can bring you forgiveness of sins because He bore the punishment for all His people on the cross. And you can be a part of His people if you just trust Him. Just acknowledge that Jesus is good, that He's wise, that He's the Lord, that He loves you. Just bow yourself before Him and say, Jesus, I I give myself to You. I trust in You. And then show that you trust Him by trusting Him enough to do what He says. Be baptized to show that you're identifying yourself with Him and His people. Get into a church, get into the Bible, and grow as a disciple. But friends, the day of judgment is coming. Do not presume that God's patience towards the unrepentant will last forever. It will not. So repent. Seek the Lord while He may be found. 